Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com. Movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because returning to the podcast, you know him as the host of Just the Discs, one of the co-hosts of the Pure Cinema Podcast, and the proprietor of Rupert Pupkin Speaks. Please welcome back to the show, one of my favorite movie fans in existence, Mr. Brian Sauer. Hi, Brian. Hi, sir. That's very, very kind in terms of introductions. You have and, a very uh, long list of credentials, uh, <laughs> so it takes a while to build you up. Well, I appreciate it, sir. And it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming up with this idea and asking me to do this. It's an honor. I regretted coming up with this idea every moment <laughs> that I tried to think of it. So uh, I'm glad one of us is here to have a good time. <laughs> well, I was trying to not – well, we can get into it in a minute, and I'll, I'll talk about how I approached the list. But I was trying to not basically repeat things that I've talked about on other shows, and that was impossible. There's no way I could do that. So it's a mix, but anyway – <laughs> yeah, you have we haven't even talked about of, what it is yet. Hundreds of hours of podcasting under your belt. Uh, there's no way you're not going to repeat. Um, yes, so we are going to be talking about, because Brian hosts uh, a podcast that's all about Blu-rays, just the discs. If you maniacs aren't listening to it, I'm guessing most of you are. Um, I thought it would be fun to do a Blu-ray-centric episode. So I thought, ooh, what if we did a show that's our, our our desert island Blu-rays. If we could only bring five Blu-rays with us somewhere, which five would we bring? And it seemed like a great idea when it was not something that I had to think about. <laughs> when it was just like, yeah, that would be cool, and I'll never have to choose my five. And now I've had to choose my five, and it turns out, uh, I don't know. I, I have bad taste. I have pedestrian <laughs> taste. I don't know. I was like... <laughs> if I'm being honest with myself, the five that I pick do not paint uh, a flattering picture of me as a movie fan. Oh, man. I'm so excited for this list right now. <laughs> Seriously. Um, that's that's cool, man. I love – no, I, I like the idea and mine is going to be – if you've heard – like I'm pretty sure you know – some of my favorite movies so some of those are going to be on here and won't be a surprise to you there's a couple that i've talked about a little bit less but there's nothing i haven't ever talked about because okay. when we're talking about desert island it's going to be something that's a favorite that's come up but one thing i will say in terms of my approach to this list is that i i legit took it as uh De desert island like Movies I take with me to an island or some sort of imposed isolation. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I tried to think about keeping things lighter, you know, because okay. I'm going to be totally by myself and, uh, you know, potentially swinging in terms of my mood. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> I veered towards more comedic stuff overall. Okay. And I, I tried to avoid even favorite movies that have pockets of annoying characters or annoying stuff. So, for instance, one of the movies that had been on my list before it came unlocked, as I was telling you <laughs> off mic, was Rear Window. Uh, and I love Rear Window, but I was watching it again this weekend, and I got to the part where Jimmy Stewart – I mean, it, actually, there's a few parts where he's just being a straight-up dick to Grace Kelly – and I was like, fuck, man, I love this movie, but I hate this part of the movie. And this this part of it is would drive if I had to watch this movie over and over again on my island, I'm like, I would get pissed. I would be upset. And I so I can't pick Rear Window. And again, that's 
not to knock the movie. I absolutely adore the movie. It's legit one of my favorite films. But I was like, no, that little annoying thing just will not stand, man. That's not going to go this time. So anyway, that was my approach. Wow. So a movie really has to pass a strict set of criteria in order to come with you to the island. Well, strict, you know, I don't know about strict, but <laughs> it definitely had to be of a certain mood and a certain evenness in terms of um, stuff that I like, basically, for okay. me. All right. How what much, was your approach? Well, Sorry. no, I, I was trying to weigh movies I would want to watch over and over again and then also trying to consider like what is on the disc that I would also want to watch over and over again. So in some Very cases smart. I picked like there's one that's a movie that is a movie I like, not a movie I love, certainly not one of my favorite movies. But the stuff that's on the disc I like so much, including one bonus feature that's like one of my favorites ever. So I'm bringing it with me to the island. That's very smart. That was a smart approach. And most of mine are pretty stacked. Um, there's one that's just medium, but that's, that's a smart way to do it. Okay. And I, I assume that's kind of what you meant when you proposed the idea. So I, I was trying to balance the two things. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious where this is going to go. <laughs> do you have movies that uh, – do you have like a list that didn't make the cut? Um, <clears throat> I had a whole – like backup list of stuff. What like I, I, a I, this is such a good idea. I may have to steal it and do it on just the disc proper at some point. Okay. Um, what do you mean proper? But, uh, that makes it sound well, like this is just a warm up. No, no, not at all. Like th actually, you get the best list. Like the the stuff that I'm that I would end up with on just the disc would be sort of secondary stuff. Like oh, okay stuff that's my leavings from this list basically <laughs> if i if i did it you know if you if you know you weren't too insulted by me stealing your idea from not my, at all. my show but um i'm curious like do you have runners up or are we going to talk about that stuff or what, what are we your... can when we're done i probably okay. have a few um but again because my list is is being put together as we're talking uh <laughs> I didn't have a lot that I had to cull from the list. You said yours has been locked in for a while. I feel just completely inadequate. Well, I just it's because of my OCD. My when I <laughs> when Elric pitches a list to me for the show or an idea for the show, my brain immediately is like, "Oh, what what would go on that list?" and I have to sketch it like then. Like I really literally um can't do something else until I at least sketch out a list. You know, and that'll change, and and it often does with the shows that I do. But um, yeah, that's just my OCD, so my own neurosis. So here's is, a here, here's a question that's not related to the topic that we're talking about. But since you brought up um, coming up with lists and stuff for Pure Cinema, like how do you how do you lock in when you guys pair movies? Like you just recently did the Larry Cohen episode, so where you were pairing movies with five different Larry Cohen films. How do you decide when you've locked in your pick? Um, sometimes it's a deadline that okay. we're pushing up against. That that helps. Um, and sometimes it's just um, it's a matter of trial and error. Like I'll I'll watch the movie that I'm pairing with the you know the Cohen movie or whatever, and sort of get a sense of it, you know, and then go and try and try a couple ideas that I have and just watch maybe 15, 20 minutes of those. And then sometimes if it's really the one, then I'll end up watching the whole movie and 
sometimes I can tell within 15 minutes, I'm like, no, this doesn't have the vibe that I felt like it had, okay. you know, it, it's not quite there. So it's usually if I end up watching the whole movie, then I'm like, okay. And I can, and I start to grab things, you know, I was a little loose, like with my pairings on the Larry Cohen episode, but like if I had a really good time watching it now and I can pull out just enough thematics or character similarities or plot similarities, then I can usually go like, yeah, this is the one I was leaning towards and I think I can make a case for it. So it's just a matter of like, kind of like a paralegal, just being like, okay, I've got enough evidence here to present my case and I had the most fun rewatching this. Okay. So that's kind of where it is okay. with that. I just, I know I would just constantly stress out, like I would just be second guessing myself and you guys always have great picks. Like a lot of times you guys say them and I'm like, yeah, of course that's the only pick. What else could it possibly be? But I know if I were in that position, I would just be second guessing like crazy. Like, Oh, maybe there's something else. Oh, maybe oh, I need to choose, you know, that happens a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of that behind the scenes for sure. For me anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get to, since you are the guest, you should uh, absolutely go first. Let's get to your first desert Island Blu-ray. Okay, this one is the one with the least amount of features on it. Okay. But it's really one that's become kind of a favorite, like really something I, I can come back to a lot. I just rewatched about half an hour, 40 minutes last night, and I was like, yeah, yep, this is definitely – and I just had watched the movie um, within the past six months already. So uh, it's Modern Girls. Oh, wow. Is, yeah. This is uh this is the Kino Blu-ray and um <clears throat> I don't know for me this movie is like the unsung not John Hughes exactly but it's in between John Hughes and like girls just want to have fun like that sort of thing and and you know just a general one crazy night which is just one of my favorite things of all time so um it's just one of those things that it just makes me feel good when i watch it yeah uh for those that don't know the plot i mean it's basically these three girls that live together played by daphne zuniga um cynthia gibb and virginia madsen they live in la um they're kind of club hopper girls they have you know kind of shitty jobs and they really look forward to hanging out at night that's their thing and they on this particular night um Virginia Madsen's character is the one who draws in the most marks, if you will, you know, people, dudes that just want to, you know, hang out with her and Clayton Roner, who I love and who I think is underrated as an eighties actor, but who's in things like just one of the guys, April fool's day. Uh, he's in I Madman, which I really like. Um, he plays like a driver's ed instructor that, thinks he maybe had more of a connection with Virginia Madsen's character than he did. He comes to pick her up on a date and she's left to go, uh, see her super douche DJ boyfriend. <laughs> this guy is like pretty high up eighties douche boyfriend guy. Um, <clears throat> leaving the other two roommates stranded at the house with no car. So they kind of have to con Clayton Roner into, Oh, we're going to go meet her. And he takes them out. And so, that plot line is one, just them getting to know each other. But then the part that I, I just, I know I've heard it on some podcasts recently, people taking maybe a dump on this movie um, because this could be kind of silly, but Clayton Runner plays a double role. He also plays 
<laughs> this pop star named Bruno X who is on MTV at the beginning of the movie. He's got this hit song and Cynthia Gibb is totally into him and she actually runs into him at a club. And so then it's this whole night of trying to find Bruno X and hanging out and hanging, just going all night kind of anyway, it's got a really fun 80s soundtrack and the vibe between the characters is fun. And the dialogue I think is enjoyable and, uh, especially Clayton Rohner and Daphne Zuniga, I think are dynamite together. So, that's just some of the things I like about it. My objection to the movie, not to put women in competition with one another, but the movie positions Virginia Madsen as the one that uh, that everyone is constantly throwing themselves at. And I just, if she's in a club with, with, with Cynthia Gibb and Daphne Zuniga, um, she's the third one I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I won't argue that with you. I think, I think the movie does an okay job of setting her up as like the one that dudes are really into. Um, but yeah, I agree with you in, in, I, I love Cynthia Gibb and Daphne Zuniga considerably more than I love Virginia Madsen. And I actually really like Vir- Virginia Madsen as an actor yeah. and as a woman, as a lady, she's gorgeous. They're all lovely. So, so anyway, um, yeah, I, I can't argue that point. Modern girls is one of these movies that the last five minutes convinces me i love it because the (laughs) it gets the vibe so right of the like it's morning now and we've been awake all night and the sky is just the right color and there's that great depeche mode song that comes up and it's like one of my favorite favorite songs yeah it it just convinces you like i just watched a great movie (laughs) and it's like (laughs) yeah if i were to rewind there'd be like bruno x and like some stuff that is maybe not as great but super goofy i get it and i get why people make fun of the movie but man you're right it it sticks the landing yeah big time the the emotional and i think that carries the emotional through line retroactively so you kind of like you say you kind of feel for the characters in a way that um, the ending solidifies totally. So I, I, I don't want to give away like who gets with who and all that stuff necessarily, but I just feel like by the end um, I'm emotionally invested in, and I didn't expect to be kind of like exactly what you're saying. And I 100% get it as a pick in terms of liking the way that it feels and and, yeah. and and wanting to feel a certain way and having that movie uh, capture that. I, I have a lot of movies like that. I totally get it. Yeah. So that's uh, my number five spot. It only has an interview with Clayton Rohner, which is actually a lot of fun. He's He's got a good sense of humor about reflecting on the movie. And um, so not much in terms of that, but still, I was so excited when Kino Lorber put this out on Blu-ray. It really made my year, ultimately. Yeah, I had a... Erica and I just I just showed that to her for the first time a couple of weeks ago because we were doing a whole bunch of 1986 movies. But oh, that's right. 86. For the longest time, I had like MGM HD had shown it, you know, before oh, it was no. out on DVD even, and I had just had this uh, a high def recording of it saved on my DVR, and I could not nice. erase my copy of Modern Girls. Um, my fifth is also a, a disc that has I think no special features on it. But um, it is Grindhouse from 2007. Very clever. Because Very clever. It's, it's just one of the most fun movies I can think of to watch. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, if I 
if I only have five movies to watch, and I wasn't even trying to cheat by packing in two. Um, but you know, before they, before Miramax put Grindhouse out on disc, they had just released Death Proof and Planet Terror separately, and and I wouldn't pick either one of those to bring with me on their own. But together with all the fake trailers and everything, I mean, it's like one of the best times I've ever had in a movie theater. I think we went and saw that movie five times. Um, nice. Because I knew just like, oh, this is very special and this isn't going to happen again. So we just kept going back to see it again and again. And so when they finally put it out, like the actual proper Grindhouse cut, um, it made me very, very happy. And it's just, I think it's a blast from start to finish. It's got enough of a difference between the two movies that it doesn't feel like three hours of the same thing. Um, the trailers can allow me to fantasize about movies I'll never get to see while I'm stuck on this desert island. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's no special features, but it's just if I can, if I only, if I'm only going to have five movies to watch again for the rest of my life, uh, I think one of them would be Grindhouse. I think that's a very cool choice. Um, I too had a similar, my wife and I had a similar, um, Excellent experience. We saw that opening Friday night at the Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, and Quentin himself was in attendance. Oh wow! Eli, yeah, it was it was a freaking party. It was crazy. I think I don't know if I told you the story, but like my wife ran into Simon Pegg and like had to shake his hand, and Nick uh, Frost coughed on me in the stairwell <laughs> on the way up from the bathroom, and it was just an Eli Roth like ran up on stage and gave this little impromptu like intro, which was kind of dorky, but um, <laughs> he was just very excited. You could tell. And the crowd was so into it. And it was one of those things where we had such a blast that when the box office receipts came in on Monday and it was like, this movie totally flopped. Yeah. We were just like, what right, happened? Right. That was so much fun. So yeah, it anyway, reminds it was, me of uh, a friend of mine, went to see i think the midnight show of ed wood back in 94 oh wow and turned to his wife and said like i don't remember if they were predicting the box office but they turned to each other and said everyone who wants to see this movie is here right now oh, no. and that was kind of the case of grindhouse because yeah i was there opening friday and it was you know not a not the star-studded event that you were at, but it was like, oh man, everybody's into this. This is so fun. How can this movie not be huge? Oh, because everyone who wants to see it is here now, and that's it. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, that is what happened. But yeah, that's I, I, I like both of those a lot. I've come to really appreciate, like Planet Terror was totally the thing for me during the screening, and Death Proof I was into, but had my reservations about, and I've since like fully 180 and i love death proof yeah and planet terror i like but i don't i don't love it as much as i did that first time i think if there was a disc of the whole bloody affair of kill bill i would take that over grindhouse because i would want to bring a tarantino and death proof wouldn't isn't my first choice of tarantino but if i can package it with the whole grindhouse i'll bring that with me since i can't get a, a whole bloody affair blu-ray of uh, of kill bill Good call. Good yeah. call. All right. Um, should I go next here? Yeah, absolutely. Other? All right. So my number four is definitely a movie I've talked about a lot, including, uh, I think, on the first episode of Pure Cinema, um, and that is Rock and Roll High School. Oh, very nice. <clears throat> Just a movie that I think is pure joy incarnate for me. 
You know, like the Ramones are like the Beatles to me. They're that important. You know, the way that people think about the Beatles. And I know a lot of people think about the Ramones already like they think about the Beatles. But I think for the most part, um, and the fact that if you listen to Alan Arkish talk about seeing A Hard Day's Night for the first time and how it like blew his mind completely and made him aware of a director and what a director does and more or less put him on the path to make movies. I think it's interesting that, you know, he ends up making A Hard Day's Night for the Ramones, basically. Um, I mean, it's, that's not exactly what it is, but it kind of is. If you watch both of those films, in fact, I would highly recommend, I have done that before, uh, Hard Day's Night Rock and Roll High School is a fun double feature. Um, but I think it's one of the great cult movies in that it is so infectious and the music has this vibrancy that you come you can't come away from it without being affected by it, I don't think. From the moment that <clears throat> from the moment that Riff Randall makes her little announcement, you know, I'm Riff Randall and this is Rock and Roll High School, and then the Sheena is a punk rocker kicks in and the whole school erupts into just dancing Mm. it's like and and i love also that the movie doesn't start on that it has like a little intro like kind of like we're getting warmed up here and then oh and here we go and once it goes i just i don't know i i absolutely love it and i was listening to a lot of the features alan arkish was saying things like uh the ramones are pop music played by chainsaws which i think is (laughs) really interesting um and then obviously the movie's very personal to him too because it's 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 it comes out of that hard day's night stuff and his love for the ramones his love for music and also his time at the fillmore east where he was from like 1968 to 1971 so you know like the concert scenes especially where he even himself is there in his fillmore east Mm t-shirt you know you know kicking people out or letting people into the theater. Like it's just very personal in that way. And so there's something about that stuff, but just the general sense of, uh, irreverence and silliness and I don't know, like screwball comedy, you know, all these things mixed in there. Uh, it's just delightful. I don't know. How do you feel about rock and roll high school? Oh, I love it. It's, it's definitely one of my favorite like rock movies ever made. It's like in my top three. Um, yeah, if I if I only could watch a handful of movies over and over again for the rest of my life, that is not a bad one to be watching because it is so much fun. We did um, a couple of years ago for my birthday. I programmed like twenty six straight hours of movies, and um, Rock and Roll High School was the penultimate movie. It was second to last because I was like, "Well, I need something that's going to get me to the finish line." And at that point, I know I'm going to be just exhausted and weary and what's going to pick me up better than rock and roll high school because it is just like a kick in the ass in the best way. Yeah, no, I I love it. Two more things I'll say about it. Um, One my favorite movie of all time is probably Joan Carpenter's The Thing. And I didn't pick that for the reason of I just don't know that I would want to watch it over and over on an (laughs) island. Yeah, right. I just I don't know if that would work. But – this does have a tie to that in that Robotine designed the giant rat costume. Nice, yeah. And he wore it himself. Uh, he also plays the um, mother rat character who has like the best apron ever that says, I hate mouse work, which I think <laughs> is a really clever touch. Anyway, so it's got a direct line to Carpenter in that way. And on top of that, it's shot by Dean Cundy, who also was a Carpenter guy and shot some of his best stuff. So anyway, and it stars that's PJ another- Souls. 
And it does. Another Carpenter connection. Exactly. Yeah. Halloween. And obviously she's cast in this movie because of Halloween. And that's right. definitely something they made clear in the commentaries and features. Oh, and by the way, if you don't have the Rock and Roll High School Blu-ray, this thing is ridiculous. It's got like four audio commentary tracks. It's got interviews with, you know, you know, Joe Dante. Oh, and that's the other thing. Joe Dante is obviously... He's got a co-story credit. He directed a couple scenes because basically Arkish wore himself completely into the hospital directing this movie. So it kind of has a Joe Dante connection, and I love Joe Dante too. So, yeah. um, But anyway, this Blu-ray is incredibly stacked with all the commentaries and interviews. It is incredible. It's le- legit one of my favorite Blu-rays for that reason too. So that's Rock and Roll High School. Yeah. Um, my next pick is kind of a cheat cause I picked something that I knew was really, really stacked. Um, and it's not an happy movie and it's not an upbeat movie. It <laughs> is Blade Runner. Um, oh. because there's that great, and I think it's out of print now, but that five disc set, um, I think it's five discs that Warner's put out about 10 years ago. So it has five different cuts of the movie plus the whole dangerous days documentary, which is like one of the best making of documentaries of all time. I figure if I'm going to be stuck watching only a couple movies, Blade Runner, not only will I be able to watch five different versions of it, not only will I be able to listen to many, many commentaries, including a Ridley Scott commentary, which is always interesting. I'll have the documentary to watch, but also Blade Runner is a movie that, you know, I could probably pick apart every time I watch it and see something new every time I see it. So I don't mind the prospect, even though it's a little bit slower and, and kind of a downer, uh, kind of bleak. I don't mind the prospect of watching it again and again because not only is it one of my favorite movies, but also because I feel like every time I watch it, I'll see something new in it. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. It's got a cool factor about it, and it's just such a, I don't know, one of a kind that um, it defies genre classification, and it's it's just something else. No, that's a a really great pick. It's definitely – and – having the extras is, is really a good idea for that one too. But yeah, no, I mean, I've never, I, I don't think there's any way that I'll ever get to a point where I'll go through all five cuts of the movie. No. But if I was on a desert Island, I think I would. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause then it's, I mean, again, it's kind of a cheat, but then instead of having five movies, you have 10. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things where I, my friend Jan, it's her absolute favorite movie of all time, and she knows it inside and out. So she could probably watch all five cuts and tell you exactly what's different in each one. But aside from some of the minor tweaks and then the big changes in the theatrical cut, I don't necessarily know the the differences, you know. No, I definitely don't either. I mean, outside of like, you know, uh, voiceover, no voiceover, right, right. that kind of stuff, like I, I'm at a loss, you know. I just love it, but I don't know the differences. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. What's your next pick? All right. Well, I will see your sci-fi and do my own because um, I definitely needed to have a little sci-fi represented. And so I'm going to go with Forbidden Planet. Oh, very nice. Um, a lot of my movies are kind of hangout movies. Um, I think that's definitely a thematic that runs through pretty much all of them in some way or another. Um and this one sort of is that. I mean, it's. I I just I I was watching it this time, thinking about 
what it must have been like to see this in 1956. And I know that that isn't as easy or interesting to do now, but if you watch it from that point of view, this must have blown some people away with not only what, what is one of the first electronic soundtracks, which is bizarre and moody and strange, uh, and totally sets a different tone. It really transports you to another planet. Um, but also just the special effects, the saucer ship landing and some of the monster effects. And uh, it's just really, really well done and well designed. I mean, it's, it's MGM, I think, um, produced. And so I guess I'm, there's part of me that's like, well, they were known for their lavish productions of, you know, musicals and whatnot. And it looks like they, you know, I don't know that that's exactly the case here, but it does look like they took, you know, the production designer from like fucking bandwagon or something and just said, Hey, come on over here and do a sci-fi movie, you know? And I, I don't know the production designer off the top of my head, but it's, that's the kind of thing you're seeing. And so on Blu-ray, it looks incredible. Um, but yeah, it's just a really, I think I want to say it's kind of a quasi take on the Tempest. Um, if I'm recalling correctly, but it's like, yeah. So it's like, um, Leslie Nielsen leads a group of, um, like, like, I guess they're like the air, the space Navy kind of Star Trek-y, um, people going to this planet, which has been, uh, like left in isolation for 20 years and when they're about to land, the guy there responds, it's please play by Walter Pigeon. And he's like, yeah, I'm here, but we're all good. No worries. Don't, you don't need to come down at all. And they're like, well, we, we can't do that. We have to come down and check on you. And we're, we're here to relieve you ideally. But he's like, no, I, I don't really want to. Well, okay, fine. Come on down. And so they come down and, and he's there. And the party that he was with is, you find out is no longer there. I won't spoil that, but, and he's there with his daughter played by, uh, Anne Francis and she's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but she's never seen uh, other humans before. So there's like, of course the dudes are sort of macking on her a little bit and it's, it's definitely funny in that way. Um, but yeah, then they sort of come to, uh, I guess sort of deal with the, uh, technology of the planet and, and the people that lived there before and, and there's conflicts between the, you know, air, the space Navy people and, uh, Walter Pigeon's character. And anyway, it's, it's really fun to watch it play out. And I found it again, very transportative in its way. And I, in terms of, you know, I love star Wars. It's a lot of fun, but this is sort of a, one of the ground zeros for star Wars. If you watch it, you can definitely see some things where, you know, not only George Lucas, but other people would borrow from this movie and take and make their own and create uh, sort of the science, science fiction movie, you know, vernacular that we're dealing with now in a lot of ways. So this would be my ground zero sci-fi pick, I think, for sure. That's a great pick. Um, do you feel like being stranded in like an isolated location and watching Forbidden Planet is a little too on the nose? Could be. It could be. <laughs> I mean, I did think about it in terms of, um, you know, the thing and why I wouldn't want to have the thing. Right. But there's a part of me that I think that 
for this one, I think it would be therapeutic somehow, okay. or that was my theory anyway. Um, and also it's got another Carpenter connection in that I had never heard of this movie until I saw Halloween and you see the kids watching both the original thing from another world and forbidden planet on the TV throughout the course of the evening. So that was my first discovery of it. Very nice. No, that's a great movie and a great, uh, Blu-ray. I've only ever seen it on Blu-ray. I've never gotten to see it. Um, you know, screened theatrically or something. I think that would be pretty mind blowing, but, uh, just to see Anne Francis on the big screen, really. More oh than yeah. Anything. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but no, that's an amazing movie. That's a great pick. It's a lot of fun. And then the disc is, is got a decent amount of stuff on it. It's got a bunch of featurettes. It's got an original documentary called watch the skies, science fiction in the fifties and us. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's got a lot to, uh, sort of, think about in terms of uh, the where this movie lies in, in terms of the uh, 50s science fiction as well as specifics on different things about the movie itself and so very satisfactory release yeah um, alright so here's something we did not clarify ahead of time our blu-ray player that we have with us on this deserted island is it region free that would that was my <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't ask that but but I was assuming yes, because okay. we, you know, why would you m- limit yourself? You know what I mean? Uh, so, are there two bigger nerds alive right now than the <laughs> two of us wondering if our hypothetical Blu-ray player on our hypothetical island is region locked? Yeah. We're not um, worried about electricity. Yeah, right. We're really <laughs> exactly. About- well, that's a given. Please. Food, water? No. I need to know if I can bring this next pick with me. Um, I'd say yes. Okay, good. So I wanted to bring in Toby Hooper. Uh, I don't know nice. if you know this. I like Toby <laughs> Hooper. Um, I'd heard rumblings of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, and I recently discovered, I think, on your episode of Just the Discs where you were talking about The Mangler, that uh, you are not a fan of this movie. And so I want to bring with me uh-oh. The Arrow video, not the Scream Factory, but the Arrow special edition release of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Okay, let me clarify my <laughs> my statements on that episode. I am coming around to that movie. I am in process on that movie. And I wouldn't say I am not a fan. However, I will say that uh, I definitely was not a fan the first time I saw it. Uh, it it drove me crazy the first time I saw it. I think but that's a very I'm, common response. Yeah, it's it's you know, and you and John Cribbs and Christopher Funderburg, you three, um, those are obviously the two guys I talked to on my show about the Mangler, and two huge Toby, Toby Hooper fans. But the three of you have helped me sort of come come around to understand how. I don't sophisticated isn't exactly the word I want to use, but kind of in a way in terms of the comedy, I feel like there's a sophistication there that uh, I definitely didn't pick up on the first few times. The first few times I was just like, why does he like these annoying characters? (laughs) What is it about the, and, and it just, it totally flew right by me in terms of the comedy and how, is it true that he thinks of basically all his films as comedies or on some level? Yeah. Yeah. So like that to me is 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 kind of an eye opener when you when you click into that and go okay wait a minute wait a minute that's 
that changes everything in a way when you start thinking about it from that point of view. So, um, so forgive me. I didn't mean to oh, you no. know, t- take a shot at Texas Chainsaw 2, no. <laughs> but I am coming around to it and it's becoming more and more interesting every time I watch it. And I'm, I've by no means given up on that movie. Like I'm, like I said, I'm still working through it, yeah. you know? No, I, I promise I was not offended or anything uh, because <laughs> it, it's, it's, a, it's a reaction that I fully understand. Um, and I still have people in my life that I'm trying to convince like, no, 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 you got to keep trying. You got to keep eventually, eventually it'll click. Um, and I don't know for sure that it will, but for me, this is probably the most Toby Hooper movie ever made. Um, it was funny when you were talking about like, I don't know, I don't know about rear window. It's got, you know, that one scene where Jimmy Stewart is annoying. I was like, (laughs) Oh boy, I'm bringing Texas chainsaw too. Everyone is annoying in that movie. Uh, and shrill and insane, but for whatever reason, you know, the fun house is my favorite Toby Hooper movie, but this is probably the one that I rewatch the most, I think, because I see the most of him in it. And so it, it sort of gives me the most joy to sit with it and hang out with it. This is a hangout movie for me. Um, no, I see that. That makes sense. It's uh it's a crazy ass movie, but one that I just never, ever tire of, um, and I wouldn't necessarily want to bring the first Texas Chainsaw because it's brilliant. It's a masterpiece, but it's also kind of exhausting and uh, draining in the way that it's just so intense. And this movie is exhausting maybe in a different way because it's just everything's cranked up so high. But because it's really a comedy, um, I find it a lot more rewatchable. Um and I wanted to bring the Arrow one instead of the Scream Factory one because the Arrow has a bunch of extras uh, that Scream Factory doesn't have. Scream Factory has like the new 4K scan, which is really, really pretty. But this one has um, a documentary that I really love about the making of called It Runs in the Family. It's got Toby Hooper on a commentary, and he does not do the best commentaries. Like It's, it's pulling teeth to get anything out of him. I love just to listen to his voice. I love the sound of his voice, but he doesn't say anything especially insightful. Um, I remember getting the arrow eaten alive and being so excited because it says, you know, play with director's introduction. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. I get to hear Toby talk about eaten alive, you know, and you put it on and he's like, hey, uh, hope you enjoy the colors. And that's the, that's the extent <laughs> of the director's <laughs> intro. <laughs> like, okay, great. Um, it's got a commentary with the cast and Tom Savini. It's got like some of the deleted stuff that, uh, like the parking garage massacre that Joe Bob was cut out of. Um, and then it also has some of his early films. It has the short film, The Heisters, and it has his oh. first feature, Eggshells, with him doing a commentary over it. So it's like the most Toby Hooper packed into one package. And so I figure I want to take that with me so I can at least have my favorite director with me on the island. That's 100% lines up, makes sense, and uh, seems like a good choice. Would you say that Texas Chainsaw 2 is maybe like his Gremlins 2? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's a, that's that a really good like, comparison. I, I wasn't sure if it seemed like much of a stretch or not, but in terms of like the unfettered, yeah. this is me doing what I do, uh, you know, without anybody really, cause I don't, I don't know this, you'd know the story behind it better than I would, but that's a Canon films one, right? Yeah. 
And did they fuck with him on the production, or were they? They. I, here's the thing. I haven't. I know he's fucked with on basically everything. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, Caroline Williams has said things to the extent, uh, like, she has said the movie that came out is not the movie that we shot. But I can't mm. find anything else about what was changed, except for some of the stuff that got deleted. But I can't find any proof that like. It was intended to be a very different movie. So I always watch it feeling like, oh, yeah, he kind of got to do whatever he wanted. And in some ways he did because they wanted a sequel to Texas Chainsaw. And it was so insanely rushed. I mean, he had that and Invaders from Mars, you know, both shot and released in the same year. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, they were. (laughs) There's a story about Kit Carson writing a scene on set and someone has to stop him because the scene was shot already. (laughs) So that's how fast they were turning things around. So I think by virtue of that happening, I think he got away with a lot. But I don't know 100% if this was the movie that it was supposed to be. I've not been, you know, and I don't know who to talk to about what movie it was meant to be. But the Gremlins 2 comparison is, is, I think, a very apt one. Yeah, and I would would like it if people... That that would have helped me maybe if people go in thinking about it that way as they start to work through it because there will definitely be a lot of people that'll that'll you know probably have trouble coming back and coming back but like I said you guys have really made me appreciate him for the true artist that he was and the guy who functioned a lot on instinct it feels like in terms of what he's doing but he's he's definitely deliberate you know it's 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 i don't know he's got a vision and i i'm i really come to respect that a lot more in the past four or five years you know um good stuff well so you're talking about um one of your favorite filmmakers i have to have one of my favorite comic forces and that's the marx brothers uh so I got it. And this was one where I, I bounced around. Uh, initially, I was like, oh, it should be Animal Crackers. That was, you know, one of the first ones that I saw that really got me. And, you know, in, in going through and then it was Horse Feathers. And but in going through the um, special features on the, you know, we said no box sets, right. which I think is fair and a good approach to this because otherwise we'd just be all box sets and that's just not as interesting. Um, but so in going through some of the features on these movies, I started to pick up on things about like, oh, Animal Crackers is, you know, a bit more stagey than some of their other stuff. I mean, obviously a lot of their stuff is based on stage work and, you know, the Coconuts is almost like a uh, filmed maybe it is more or less a film version of their play, you know, and animal crackers is a step away from that, but it's still very theatrical. I do love that. It gives uh, great introductions to all three characters, uh, Groucho Harpo and Chico. But when it came down to it, I, I can't disagree with the prevailing wisdom, which is that duck soup is probably the best movie that they ever made. And part of that has to do with uh, it being directed by Leo McCary, who is one of the great comedy directors of the first half of the 20th century. I mean, he, you know, between this movie and uh, stuff like The Awful Truth, 
you know, which I think is dynamite and yeah. the, some Harold Lloyd stuff that he did. The guy just understands comedy. I mean, he, he more or less created the Cary Grant that we, you know, would come to know and love in his girl Friday. Right. Like he was helping him find that because he was so good with comedy anyway. So he looks at what the Marx brothers are doing and he says, okay, you guys are singing too much. Uh, you know, I love it, but let's, let's really, let's trim that down. And so he gets, you know, he gets this movie down to 68 minutes. I mean, he doesn't get it down to, but you know, it's, it's a 68 minute, you know, freight train of comedy. Uh, and it just goes and goes and goes and has so many great gags and so many great little islands, little standalone bits, um, you know, of Chico and Harpo fucking with people, of Groucho. I mean, obviously it's incredibly timely whenever you have an administration that, you know, you can, you can kind of make fun of, you know, which happens often. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason the movie was so embraced in the, uh, late 1960s, uh, you know, because of its, uh, approach to politics, which is just like, we can get any idiot to run a country and, you know, <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's, it's there. They have this certain irreverence. I think that people responded to a lot too, which I really love. Um, but yeah, they're just always making fun of people. Groucho's breaking the fourth wall. There's things that are happening here that, um, also are, are ground zero for a lot of, uh, well, I mean, I don't know, like exactly ground zero. Like I can't say Grouch is the first, he's not the, necessarily the first one to break the fourth wall, but he's one of those guys that does it so well that you're just like, Oh wow. That, that's so effective. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's just so much stuff in it. I love, you know, the mirror gag, um, stuff with Margaret Dumont, who is like one of the great straight men slash women characters ever. Um, she just really makes the movie better, you know, with the three of them. And I don't know, I, I just, I just adore it. Like I literally, I, I just little, even little throat, like, like Groucho's names, you know, I mean, he's Rufus T Firefly here. He's professor Quincy Adam Wagstaff in, uh, horse feathers, Otis B Driftwood, Dr. Hugo Z Hackenbush. He always has good names. Um, but just like there was one line that I caught this time that I hadn't caught before when they lock Groucho in like a closet or a bathroom or something. And he's like, Hey, let me out of here or throw me a magazine. And for some reason, <laughs> or throw me a magazine was really funny to me. Like, I don't know why, but, um, all right. So I'll shut up about this, but it's this disc in particular, this is part of a box set, but I would take just this disc uh, it has a commentary with Leonard Malton and this guy, Robert S. Bader, who wrote a book on the Marx Brothers more focusing on their uh, vaudeville stuff. And this commentary is pretty loose, um, which I actually don't mind. There are there are spots where they let a, a really good scene play and then they'll kind of loosely talk. Um, so that commentary is great. And then it also comes with this documentary that I watched called the Marx brothers, the Marx brothers, Hollywood's Kings of chaos, which, uh, highlights their paramount films, uh, and their career as a whole. But they interview a ton of great people from, you know, Dick Cavett, Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander. Uh, oh, and by the way, if you want to hear some fun Marx brothers talk, there's a little bit of it on one or both of the parts of the interview with Scott Alexander for, 
uh, movies that made me, which came out a couple, three weeks ago or so. Um, and that's a lot of fun, but they talked to Groucho's kids and some of the Marks, the other Marks kids. And anyway, it's a great documentary really gave me a sense of evolution for them and, and the problems they were having with studios and with their material. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a rockier road than you would think. And also they're coming to it. They're in their forties, you know, when they make duck soup. So it's crazy to me that they're getting in so late and still so strong. But I mean, part of it is that they're honing everything on stage and then bringing it to the screen. And rarely do we have that happen in terms of comedy. I don't think so. Anyway, um, absolutely dynamite, you know, definitely the whole box set is worth getting, but, uh, Duck Soup would be the one for me. Great pick. Super, super rewatchable, you know. So much. I showed it to a class a couple of years ago and it died and I couldn't oh, understand no. it. Yeah, I couldn't understand it. And the only thing I could come up with is that so many of the jokes are dependent on like wordplay and idioms that maybe they just have never been exposed to. So they don't understand what it's a play on. True. I couldn't figure it out because to me it's hilarious and I would think it would be funny to anyone, but for what, and it may, maybe it was just this specific group. Maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know. But the only thing I could figure is that it requires a certain knowledge base that maybe just this group did not have. Um, but yeah, it bummed me out. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. No, I was, I was almost trying to squeeze that in my wife. It gets annoyed when I do this sometimes, but I'm like, hey, we're doing family movie night tonight. How about I wedge in one of these movies that I want to watch <laughs> for a podcast? And she's like, you can try it. But, you know, she, she, A, she's not excited because my wife's thing to me always. If we watch a movie that we've already seen, she's like, we have so many thousands of movies. That's I've, I've heard this phrase many, many times from my wife. We have so many thousands of movies. Why do we have to watch the same ones over and over again? <laughs> and I can't argue that point, certainly. But, you know, Raven hasn't really – I haven't had a chance to run her through the Marx Brothers stuff yet. I yeah. did it with Hawthorne, and that was great. And it was actually one of the highlights of my entire life, if I'm being honest. That and the Jerry Lewis stuff. But I haven't had got a chance to do that with her yet. So, you know – I, I still want to, but yeah, that didn't fly. Well, we'll say <laughs> I had to watch it by myself, so I didn't get a chance to see how it played to a nine going on 10 year old audience. <laughs> My justification for re watching something is always like, well, that's why we own it, so that we can watch it more than if I watch something only once, then it's like we don't need to own it, then I can just rent it or whatever. But so I, sometimes I feel better about watching something a second time or a third time or a 20th time because I'm like, well, I'm glad we own this so that I can watch it 20 times. Exactly. No, I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try and bring that up. Yeah, point. see how that goes. <laughs> Float that one by. <laughs> um, all right. So my next pick is uh, – I won't say I'm embarrassed about it, but this is the one where I was like, oh, this probably just paints a picture of me as somebody whose idea of movies only goes back 25 years. Um, it's, it's the movie that I like, don't love, but I love the disc. And that is, uh, Kevin Smith's clerks. Oh, I, I like clerks enough. It's funny enough. You know, I have affection for it because of when it came out and who I was at the time. And Kevin Smith, yeah, meant a lot to me, you know, at us in the nineties. Um, and I like where he's at now. I like that. He's just making the movies he wants to make, you know, uh, for his fans and, <clears throat> um, I don't begrudge him any of that. Um, 
the the thing about him is I've always enjoyed the bonus features on his movies probably more than the movies themselves. <laughs> like I've listened to the commentary on Mallrats way more times than I've seen Mallrats because the commentary is just so funny and it's just such a fun hangout with that group of people. Um, ben Affleck in particular is just hysterical and, and we kind of lost sight of that given who, you know, the direction his career went and everything. But as a person, he was just so, so funny. Um, and the clerk's disc has so much great stuff. It has two making of documentaries, one on Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I don't know why that's on there, but the, the big reason that I picked it is because there's this documentary called the snowball effect that came out first on the, uh, 10th anniversary clerks DVD in 2004 and then was ported over to the Blu-ray when that came out. And it's like this great making of documentary. That's just this retrospective about how the movie got made and more importantly, how it got sold. And there was a period in my life when I was trying to maybe make an independent film. Um, and that documentary was like the most inspirational thing for me just because of the way that it came together. And it was like, here's a group of friends that just made a movie and somehow got it out there. And, uh, you know, the model has changed so much that the lessons aren't as relevant now, but that documentary meant so much to me that I felt like I wanted to have it with me on the deserted. Island. And there's a ton of other stuff too. There's like commentaries and featurettes and deleted material and an alternate cut of the movie with a, like a darker do the right thing ending and, um, all kinds of stuff that I, you know, I don't even know how often I would actually watch clerks, but I would probably spend a lot of time with the bonus features. Well, I'll say, and I, and this isn't anything new, but I don't think he ever got it as right as he did in that movie. And I also don't think it's benefited him to, I don't know how to put this. Basically all his life research, you know, everything he's lived goes into that first movie and his point of view goes into that first movie. And he's obviously able to carry that point of view into other films. But I feel like in terms of, the snapshot of Kevin Smith at that time and and his camaraderie with people he knew and, and his sense of humor, I feel like it's never as distilled uh, as it is in that movie. And I, I, I still think it's the, you know, the funniest movie he made. I, I, I just think it's a great first feature and, and I could totally, I don't, I must've seen that, that doc you're talking about, um, but I can't remember right now, but uh, the whole thing was definitely inspirational for me in a lot of ways, you know, before he, um, became sort of bigger than life that like he is now, I feel like he was really a big deal to me. And, um, and he's still, I think an interesting dude, like you say, I'm, I'm happy that he's in a place where he can do like the man, you know, makes a living making movies and podcasting. Like I, <laughs> I really, <laughs> I, maybe it's just all jealousy on my part, you know, <laughs> because that is just like my ideal life, really, right there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did, but but yeah, Clerks to me is still very funny and just has just such a specific um, sense of humor about it. And I, yeah, I, I, and I do love the commentaries. The commentaries are always incredibly funny, and so I totally get why you would pick that movie it's it's a really interesting thought actually and one that i can almost see myself doing something like that 
too, you know, because it's definitely a great rewatchable movie in that sense. Um, and there's so much other stuff to go through there too. So cool. I think, it was, I think it was the first commentary I ever heard when I was in high school, I saved up and bought, wow. my, bought my laser disc player. And I oh, remember man. driving to tower records, like in way downtown in Chicago and buying the clerk's laser disc and listening to it. And that was when I discovered that the director was the guy who played Silent Bob because I didn't realize that <laughs> at the time. You know, we didn't have the internet. I don't know that I'd read oh, yeah. about it in Premiere or whatever. It wasn't until that. he pointed it out that I thought, oh, that's him. That's that's what this guy looks like. OK, how fascinating. Yeah, I believe it was the first commentary I ever heard. It was definitely one of the earlier ones for me, too. Um, yeah, I can't remember if I heard an interview where he was talking about commentaries or if it was about laser discs or doesn't he, doesn't he have something on that commentary that, or at least I don't know if they ported it over to the Blu-ray now, but it's like laser disc forever. Or it's something on, like uh, it's on chasing Amy chasing when criterion Amy, put out the, right. the chasing Amy laser. I wrote like a grad school paper on Kevin Smith bonus features. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It was a weird class, but, um, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, he opens up the Chasing Amy Criterion Laserdisc by saying, fuck DVD. Fuck DVD, that's right. Yeah, and then they did, I think, carry that over with a new with a new uh, interview where he, like, sort of is apologetic about, I mean, jokingly so, but like, yeah, well, sorry I said that. Uh, I didn't mean it. <laughs> um, yeah. Good stuff. Good pick, man. Thank you. Um. All right, well, my last one is definitely an all-time favorite, you know, like maybe my number two right after Carpenter's The Thing. And rewatching it this weekend only cemented that. Um, that would be Rio Bravo. Oh, very nice. Um, it's, it's one of the great hangout movies ever, really, and one of the quintessential Howard Hawks films, along with Only Angels Have Wings, in terms of demonstrating Hawks's point of view and you know the the film theory stuff I learned in college uh and part of the reason that I got so into him was I I did I took a great theory class in college that I loved and we talked about you know we were talking about autourism and auteur theory in general and and definitely his uh my my teacher at the time, this woman loved Hawks. So we watched a ton of it and it totally worked on me because I could absolutely see the themes of professionalism that run through his work um, coming through in movies like Red River and uh, Only Angels Have Wings, especially. You know, like there, I remember really specifically her talking about the scene where, you know, a pilot dies. And his steak is still sitting at this table and somebody's like, where's what's his name or that's so-and-so steak and Cary Grant. I don't want to give away the character's name, but he's like, who's so-and-so as if the guy ceased to exist because he was, he was not pro enough to make it through this, you know, this bit of business that he had to do. Like that was the quintessential absolute example of that professionalism to mm. to deny the existence of a human <laughs> being because they were so unprofessional but um real bravo while being a pretty loose narrative is is very much focused on that 
you know, this idea that you have uh, uh, John T. Chance, which is um, John Wayne's character, is the sheriff of this small town, and he, at the beginning of the movie, is pulled into a situation where this rich rancher's brother basically murders somebody in cold blood and he takes him to jail. And then the rich rancher is, um, trying to get his brother out through whatever means necessary. And if that means hiring people to kill anyone that tries to help, uh, chance, uh, he's willing to do that. And so it just becomes sort of a standoff, but we have, you know, uh, Walter Brennan as like the crippled uh, guy who watches the jailhouse. And then Dean Martin who plays like a drunk um, that's sort of trying to clean himself up to help chance out. And uh, that that dynamic is just really great. And then you bring Ricky Nelson into it and Angie Dickinson and it's just forget about it, man. It's just <laughs> so fantastic. Um, and I, I don't know. I just I I love underdog stories in general. I think that's one of my favorite things cinematically. And you know, this definitely has that setup. And and it just it's a two hour and twenty minute movie that definitely takes its time. Um, I was noticing that Ricky Nelson is like the proto Chris Evans in this one. By the way, he's very like he just reminded me of Chris Evans a lot. Interesting. <laughs> And and apparently he turned 18 while making this movie, which oh I also gosh. didn't know. He seemed older than that to yeah. me. But um, uh, this was one that I discovered through Tarantino. I was heavy into him, you know, circa 1994 when Pulp Fiction was coming out. I was working at a video store and I came across a list of his favorite films and, you know, things like Blowout and uh, – taxi driver and and rio bravo was either the top of his list or one of the tops and he would and the quote was something like if i'm getting serious about a girl i show her rio bravo and she better fucking like it <laughs> and that's that quote has stuck with me you know 30 years it's it's definitely and i had a moment like that with my wife where i was like oh boy she better fucking like it and she did thankfully she totally got it and dug it and um and that was great. That was a moment where I was like, oh, good. Because <laughs> not that a movie's going to make or break my marriage, but um, my wife has passed many a test like that with the real movies that matter to me. The the, the big, big ones that are not just frivolous comedies. Right. Like she she's into the, the comedy is the one thing we differ on, I think, the most. Like we just have different senses of humor. But everything else you know, good drama, good horror, good science fiction, especially those are all things that we connect on. And surprisingly, this Western was something we connected on. So I was surprised about that. But, um, yeah, I just, I love that the movie comes from a reaction. I mean, it's been said, but it's, it's a reaction by Hawks to high noon and him being like, why would a professional sheriff try to drag a whole bunch of amateurs into his fight and, and get them killed? You know, that's, I, I don't know if he said that's un-American, but it was something almost along the lines of that. Um, so I just like the idea of this great movie, one of you know one of my very favorite movies being made as a reaction to another you know great movie. I mean, I'm not as big a fan of High Noon. I think it's interesting, and but I see its place in film history, and just the idea that without that, I don't get one of my favorite movies. Right is kind of interesting to me. But um, one thing that I, I took away from this viewing was going through the special features. Now this is one of John Carpenter's favorite movies. He does a commentary with Richard Schickel, which is really great. 
because he's very complimentary about the movie as close to gushing as John Carpenter gets, which is not to say that he's gushing, but he is very complimentary in that low key Carpenter way. Um, but the other neat thing is that there's also interviews with Walter Hill, who obviously loves Hawks, Bogdanovich and some other film scholars in the, um, there's a little documentary on there. And one of the things they touch on is how Hawks had been on his longest hiatus, um, ever in his career. I think previous to this, he'd made land arrows, which if you see it is a campy mess. I mean, I like land of the Pharaohs. I think it's very silly, but, uh, but I'm a fan, but that movie really hurt him. Like, like John Carpenter's the thing hurt him in a way, you know? So he took four years off. He moved to Europe. Um, John Wayne hadn't made a Western in three years with the searchers. So he was, you know, doing other stuff and it was just a thing where Hawks came back from being in Europe and started watching TV. And apparently he saw, I mean, some of the most popular television shows in the 1950s were Western shows and he started to see some value in the storytelling they were doing. And you can kind of see that a little bit. I'm not saying, I think Rio Bravo is cinematic in the ways that Hawks can be cinematic, but he's very nuts and bolts in terms of his direction. Like he just really puts the camera where it needs to be and he's not flashy. Right. Um, so from that point of view, you can, you can compare the two, but I didn't even think about the idea that TV was a big influence and that making a Western in 1959 was definitely not a sure bet. Um, and the studio, I, I feel like they tried to talk him out of it. And, and uh, so there's just a lot of things about it that were, not for sure. And for it to be, I think his best film. Uh, I just think that's great. Again, sort of an underdog story in its own right. A guy on his, uh, on his heels a little bit and, and a little, I don't know. I, I would imagine a man's man like Hawks probably took the defeat of, uh, land of the Pharaohs pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, so to come back from that and make something so great, I just think is pretty wonderful. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, just one of my favorite things ever. I just absolutely adore it. <laughs> Here's a chicken egg question for you. Do you think you love Carpenter because you love Rio Bravo, or do you think you love Rio Bravo because you love Carpenter? Well, I mean, I that's a good question, actually, because... So many of I his think, movies are sort of riffing on Rio Bravo. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, Assault on Precinct 13, straight up. And I love Assault on Precinct 13. Um you know, I I think I saw a little bit more Carpenter at a younger age before I saw Hawks. So I'd hide, kind of have to give it to Carpenter and then retrospectively starting to see the Hawks stuff in it and then retrospectively starting to understand why I like Carpenter so much as a filmmaker is that he's taking some of the best things about Hawks' style and storytelling and characters and incorporating it into his really cool approach to making a movie, which is also kind of notes and bolts, but still has a little more panache than Hawks. Um, so he's, I wouldn't say he's one upping Hawks, but he's definitely, and you know, yes, anding him, you know, it's really great way. So probably Carpenter than Hawks, I think. Okay. All right. Um, well, my, my last pick is completely uninteresting and completely uninspired, but I was trying to think, uh, if I could only watch 
one movie, if, if somehow I lost my other four copies, uh, my other four movies, and I could only watch one movie for the rest of my life, uh, there would be oh. two possibilities. One would be Back to the Future, which is my favorite movie ever. But be because of the other four movies I'm taking, some of which lean kind of dark, um, I've decided to instead take uh, The Wizard of Oz. Nice. Which is, you know, basically as close to perfect as a movie gets. Um, and, uh, you know, there's certainly not much I could say about The Wizard of Oz. It's like trying to, you know, review the song Happy Birthday. Like, it's a movie that has, <laughs> it's a movie that has everything you could really want out of a movie. It's got a little of this, a little of that. Um, great songs, amazing photography, iconic characters, performances, a good story, good message. Uh, a little bit of horror, a little bit of action, a lot of comedy. You know, it's it's just it has everything. It's a perfect movie. And um, the disc that Warner's put out like 10 years ago, you know, that 50th anniversary is just stacked with insane amounts of stuff. Um, a commentary with a ton of different people who were involved that's kind of stitched together and all kinds of featurettes and promos and pictures and just as much as you could want to go through the making of the wizard of Oz. Um, you know, I, there's a, there's a book it's been talked about on this podcast before by Elgin Harm. It's called the making of the wizard of Oz, which is one of the best books about movie. Have you ever read it? I don't think I have. It's one of the best books about like movie making ever because at the same time that it's about how the Wizard of Oz came together, it's about how all movies come together and how any movie is a miracle, but especially the Wizard of Oz, given uh, the fact that, you know, five different directors worked on it. And uh, it's about the studio system at the time. I mean, there's just so much uh, that goes into the movie. It's or that goes into the book. It's it's I can't recommend it highly enough. But um, so I had some background before delving into a lot of the special features, but uh, there's a lot of new stuff that I found on there and just, you know, the movie itself is a movie I grew up with. So I'm always going to have affection for it because, you know, they would show it once a year. And I remember one year my parents decided to like record it and that felt like cheating. Like you had to wait <laughs> until it aired one time and that was your only opportunity to see the Wizard of Oz every year. Um, so it's tied in with, you know, just growing up loving movies and, and being excited for this tradition. Um, yeah, I, I feel like so much of my identity as a film fan is tied into The Wizard of Oz. So I guess it makes sense as my last pick. Totally does. I love it. Yeah. Uh, um, what, what's, uh, what's, uh, what's on your honorable mentions or your, your next let's ins? see here. Um, well, I had uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Very nice was literally my number five pick until the last minute. That was, <laughs> it was just one where I was like, Oh, it's such a, it really balances the list. It gives me some horror. Cause that's the one thing I'm missing Yeah, that I wish I had was horror. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. Just finally decided modern girls was the way to go. Um, let's see here. Uh, school of rock actually was one I considered, but that was a little too much like rock and roll high school. Um, Better Off Dead, What's Up Doc, uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Young Frankenstein, Dazed and Confused, uh, stuff like that. I'm trying to think. Uh, the Apartment, Midnight Run. What uh, what was on yours? I had The Apartment on mine for a short time. Um, 
Matinee was on mine. Oh, very um, nice. Yeah, I don't have any Dante that officially. Yeah, and that, yeah. I think that's the one that it would... You've got Rock and Roll High School, so it's kind of Dante adjacent. Kind of, yeah. Um, but yeah, if I was going to bring any Dante, it would be Matinee. Um, what else? Oh, I thought about Tenebrae, but then I was like, I already have horror. I can't just be watching horror all the time. But <laughs> I love that disc, and it's got that great uh, documentary about Giallo movies that I'd probably end up watching more than I would watch Tenebrae. Um uh, and the one that I came closest to putting on, but then took off because again, too many of my picks were like dark was Boogie Nights. Um, because I love that movie and because there's two different Paul Thomas Anderson commentaries that I kind of have memorized. I love them so much. And, uh, I remember I was such a Paul Thomas Anderson fan and such a fan that like back when I was making tapes, I made a tape for Erica that was like all Paul Thomas Anderson themed. So it was like songs from his movies and then some audio clips of dialogue from his movies. At this point, it was really just Heart Eight and Boogie Nights that were available. I had songs from Magnolia because I had the soundtrack, but Magnolia wasn't out on DVD yet. Uh, And then I even included like audio clips from his commentaries, (laughs) like of him talking about his movies. So that's how into him I was. So yeah, uh, I know those commentaries backwards and forwards and and i love that movie so much and it's certainly a movie that like means so much to both of us and means so much to our relationship and that i could watch again and again but i was like i already have enough violence and darkness (laughs) on my (laughs) on my desert island i don't need another one so i'm going wizard of oz instead makes sense well this was awesome thank you very much for uh for doing it i hope it was no my pleasure fun and not and not too stressful yeah, no, no, definitely not. Well, hopefully I didn't stress you out too much in having to throw this together. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I feel like you put you came up with a good list. Uh, yeah. you know, like I said, it's it probably it probably leans a little too recent. But what can you do? Yeah, but I mean, mine. I mean, for the most part, I mean, I think the thing that both lists have in common is they're very us. They're very yeah. You know, you and me, and I think that's really what it boils down to with an with a list like this is. It's going to be, you know, you alone with yourself. Right. So you <laughs> right. got to be, you got to be you, man. Yeah. You got to be you. Yeah. And so I think that that's what, what comes through in both lists for sure. And so. I certainly feel like uh, watching all of these movies now. So I guess we did our job. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I hope, I hope we've inspired because your list definitely inspired me. And I hope that both will inspire some other folks that maybe haven't seen some of the stuff we've been talking about to uh to go and check them out but i'm i'm just glad you pitched the idea it was a lot of fun to when you first pitched it and i was very excited and i'm sorry it took so long to get to finally recording it but i do appreciate the invite very much you're a you're a you're a busy man uh (laughs) speaking of which where can everyone find you online uh i am bob freelander on twitter um rupert pupkin speaks on instagram uh, we also have, you know, Twitters for Pure Cinema Pod and just the Disc Pod, and Instagrams for both. Um, that's mostly where I hang out. There, there is a uh, Pure Cinema Facebook group that uh, I know you're part of, and I would recommend people check out, even if they're not necessarily a fan of the show, because it's a lot of really cool people. Uh, you know, not Elric and me, but just <laughs> a lot of very neat film fans you know, talking geeky film stuff 
all the time. And uh, I really love that place. So that's another place you could uh, find us. But yeah, that's it for me. And your uh, underrated 99 series just started at the blog. Oh, which yeah. I'm very excited about. Yeah, no, uh, just started underrated 99. Yes, RupertPupkinSpeaks.com. Um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. That uh, that was the most writing I've done for an introduction to a list in a long time because I've gotten pretty lazy about that. <laughs> but 99 happens to be a very pivotal year for a lot of reasons, but certainly not the least of which is that I moved to Los Angeles in 1999. So I have a little reminiscence at the front of my list about that. Um, and it, it just, it's not that long, but it, it, I was going to be like two sentences and then suddenly I was like, Oh my God, I'm writing about California and I'm writing about the fact that I've been out here 20 years. And I just was sort of rolling that over and over in my head and kind of going, what happened? I've been a Californian for more than half my life. That's crazy to me. Um, so anyway, that was a fun list to do, but uh, I'd love to hear your take on that. If you're interested in slash have time to do one uh you're always welcome of course oh i appreciate it uh yeah i was so excited that mumford was on your list because i didn't know that anybody else loved mumford well and i did write that list before i listened to you and adam's uh episode on oh, that yeah, guy, right, which right. is a great great episode um but i'd already had mumford on there and uh yeah mumford is great and and has been announced for blu-ray uh for june i think oh, which really? is exciting yeah, uh, Kino, you know, dropped like a big tweet full of movies, and and Mumford was in the mix. It was kind of hidden in there, but uh, they have announced it for June. So, um, I God, I'd love it if they could get a commentary with Kasdan, but yeah. I just have a feeling that's not going to happen. But regardless, I think they'll get something, and I just I want to hear more about that movie. I just want to know more about it. I just I love that watching it again. I was just completely blown away by how much I loved it. Yep. I was like, wow, this movie is such a darling, you know, it's a good one. Too bad. We have to leave it behind when we go to yes, our deserted it's island. Gone. It's <laughs> Goodbye, Mumford. Hello totally... clerks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yes, thank you so much, Patrick. I really appreciate it, man. Thank always, you. It's super fun to talk movies awesome. with you as always. Thank you, sir. All right, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.